sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of God. It's been a full morning already, and I tremble a bit to preach the word of God to you, and I thought about that. Uh, why do we tremble? Is it the fear of man? Is it a lack of humility? We get all nervous because people might think something of us that we wouldn't like them to think of us. It's the flesh, right? The flesh trembles. <clears throat> well, I got... I'm not going to give you a message... Uh, uh, heading this morning right away. I'm going to lay a bit of groundwork before I go there. So I'm just going to break right in here. <clears throat> uh, I'm referencing out of John, the first part of the first chapter in the beginning. God speaks, and what was a place of darkness becomes a place of light. There is Something that happens, and there's no sunshine, there's no moon, there's no stars, but somehow this dark, void, shapeless place takes on light. God speaks, and the water separates, and God calls it firmament, and he calls the firmament heaven. God speaks again in the grass, the trees, the herb, the green things, all these growing things that we see appear just at a word. God speaks again, the sun, the moon, and the stars appear. No effort. He just speaks, and these things happen. God speaks again, and the waters are teeming with aquatic life. Dolphins, whales, octopus, fish, frogs, the many thousands, maybe millions of organisms that live in the ocean, at a word, it all happens in an instant. At the same time, birds appear, songbirds, the many, many, the, the huge variety of songbirds in our home. We love birds up north at our bird feeder and around our property. The boys came up with like a hundred different species of birds. So there's songbirds, there's ducks, owls, egrets, ostriches, woodpeckers, eagles, pheasants. Most birds fly, but some don't. That's interesting. Ostriches, emus, 
uh, rias, they have feathers and wings, but they don't fly. They cannot get off the ground. They're not made to fly, but they're birds. God speaks again, and there's cattle and creeping thing and every beast of the earth. Horses, giraffes, elk, pheasant, uh, elephants, pigs, lions, goats, sheep, platypus, mice, rabbits, zebras. At a word. I'm missing lots and lots of animals. You know that. And God formed man out of the dust of the earth with all his fearful and wonderful components. And I thought about that different times through the years. Did God take that like clay and form it with all the blood veins? It says he formed man out of the dust. The miles, there's miles of blood veins in our bodies. And God forms this. This this creator God, Lord of heaven and earth. He is in absolute control. And when he was done, he said, it's very good. It was beautiful. There was no flaw in this creation. So we're going to take a fast journey through some of the Old Testament. I didn't get near everything, but some of the bigger things we'll walk through quickly here. The fountains of the deep opening and the windows of heaven opening and the flood that covers the earth destroying every living thing that was not in the ark. Some think that there was volcanoes. There was a cataclysm of things that happened. The earth opened up and water gazer shot. You think about uh, the gazers there in Wyoming in, in this Montana in this park, Old Faithful. This ain't just tremendous force and heat and, and the earth opening its mouth and the windows of heaven opening and these things come together in a terrific thing that we look back and see as the flood. And there's no detail there, but there are scientists that have brought a lot of these pictures into my imagination and it's, it's, a, it's a staggering thing to think about, the fear, people's hearts melting with fear, no doubt. God confounding languages of those who are building the Tower of Babel. That's, that's beyond comprehension. Fire and brimstone judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The exodus of the children of Israel from a destroyed Egypt. That's a whole story by itself. Crossing the Red Sea on dry land. Manna for several million people. And shoes that didn't wear out for 40, both for 40 years. God sustained the children of Israel for 40 years. And it says that their shoes and their garments did not wax old. God. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. There was an earthquake because God himself came down on this mountain. And things happen when God is there. When we see the creator God come into the picture, things, supernatural forces go into action. Things happen. There the Ten Commandments were given. The children of Israel feared to come close to that mount. This thing was quaking in the smoke and the fire. This place was blazing and there was this loud trumpet blast that just kept getting louder and louder. God came down there. 
the earth opens up its mouth and swallows Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and their families and their houses. Moses said, a new thing will happen. And the earth clave asunder. And these men that opposed Moses, the chosen uh, leader of Israel there, coming out of, out of Egypt, they withstood Moses. And God opened the mouth of the earth. And not just these men, but their families and their houses went into this earth. And this thing closed up again. Water from a rock. For millions of people, animals, I didn't know, probably almost without number, water from a rock. Impossible. Doesn't make sense. Supernatural. Balaam's donkey speaks. People have tried to teach dogs and monkeys to speak, but... They've been unsuccessful so far. They, they, they can't frame their tongue around the words. <laughs> Israel crosses Jordan on dry land. The waters parted, the wind blows, and it was a time of the, the season of flood, the rainy season, and so the river was high. It was impossible looking at it from man's viewpoint, but there again God cut the water off and the water backed up. And they crossed Jordan on dry land. The massive walls of Jericho crumble, fall down. I've heard said that they were so wide that they, that they raced chariot races around the top of those walls. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but I've heard that. Maybe I got that mixed up. Maybe that wasn't Jericho, but I believe that was Jericho. The sun stands still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. It says the moon did too. Impossible. This is God. The supernatural strength of Samson. This man picked up the gates and bars and takes them to the top of a hill. Dagon falls on his face before the ark of God, and his head and his hands are cut off. He fell down twice. The second time, his head and his hands was cut off. Fell down before the ark of God. David slays Goliath. Goliath was a man of war from his youth. Not just a man of war, he was a giant. The impossible. The widow's pot of oil sustains her for three years through the famine. Naaman is cured of leprosy by dipping in the muddy Jordan River. Fire falls from heaven, licking up the sacrifice, the water, and the altar there with Elijah, the 450 prophets of Baal. Horses, a chariot of fire and a whirlwind takes Elijah to heaven. Bigger. 
Sorry. Sorry about the sloppy handwriting. <clears throat> I guess I'm not a scribe. <clears throat> so let's read for a text, uh, John, the Gospel of John. I'll read the first 14 verses. John verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was said to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we just, what I just ran through the Old Testament quickly there with was a foundation for what I want to share. Uh, It's a dichotomy. This God humbles himself and comes down off of this throne and takes on the form of man and comes to earth. This mighty God who we heard about this morning, just briefly, all the things that he did, he comes to this earth and he's the humble Christ. Humble, humility, having an humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's own littleness, modesty, lowliness of mind. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So Jesus left the position. He was with God. He left his throne. He put off his heavenly outward glory and his crown, if you will. He laid aside his heavenly robes. He went from king immortal, eternal, to human mortal with all its limitations and was born a helpless baby in a stable. Now that's quite a step down. God, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, takes off his glorious robe and comes to earth a baby. So I have two points this morning that I want to make out of that, and I mostly am speaking to us brothers. I think everyone could probably glean out of this, but I ran out of time, and I... I guess maybe that's just what all the Lord had for me this morning, and I'm fine with that. Humility in a husband. I'm a husband. Some of you are going to be husbands, so don't go to sleep on on me here. 
Humility in a husband. Jesus was not high-minded, as we have seen. He came down from his throne, and maybe we need to come down from our thrones. He went from king to foot-washing servant. He agonized in prayer with sweat, blood, and tears. His love and devotion to his bride, which is us, caused death to his flesh on the cross. He died for our sakes, for our sin. When our relationship with our spouse brings us to sweat, blood, and tears, how do I respond? How do we respond? Just very practical this morning. Does it look like Christ did? Do we embrace the cross? Do we die as Christ died? Or is it sweat, blood, tears, and anger? I've lived there for many years. Christ was humble. Are we? Anger is not, in this context, is not a part of humility. Now, Christ got angry. The hardness of the people's hearts. He got angry that they defiled the temple. But he didn't get angry at his bride. He came and he died. He came and was a sacrifice. What was Christ's mission? He came to give his life. He came to die. We want to live, right? He came to die. We want to live. But we can't live right unless we die, except a grain of corn fall into the earth and die. It remains alone. It's unproductive, absolutely unproductive. It's worth nothing. But you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God if you're born again. Colossians 3.12 commands, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. See if this doesn't look like our Christ. Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. That looks like Christ, doesn't it? If he wasn't, my judgment would have been sure and done. But because he was long-suffering, even while I walked in sin, he suffered long. He allowed me. That suffering is allowing. He was long allowing. Putting all these things on doesn't just automatically happen when we become born again. He says it's a command. He says to put it on. Purposeful. You can look at my life and you can say, well, brother, it's obvious you're not quite all, you know, you're, you're preaching something that you're probably not really there, you know. You're not perfect, right? You understand what I'm saying? You say, well, Lee, you're really saying a lot of big things here, but I really would question if I, you know, do I see all those things in your life? Probably not, but I want to be. I want to be. I want to apply these things in my life. I want these things to be fruitful in my life. And I guess that's why I'm sharing them with you is because I told a brother yesterday that what I plan to share this morning is... Just the journey that God has been taking me on. 
So this isn't a tailored message for Zion. It's a tailored message for me, and I'm just sharing with you the things that God has been knocking on my door. And the reason he's knocking on my door is because I don't have them. I need them. I want to practice them. It's a little hard to practice these things when you're not part of a body of Christ. How do you want another if there isn't others to another with? How am I long-suffering if it's just me, myself, and I? So here I am now. I'm part of a body, and uh, there's things that are chasing me here. The Word of God is, is pursuing me, but I want it. I thought this morning, maybe I shouldn't say this, but maybe just to lighten you up a bit. I thought this morning, yeah, there's second generation, maybe third generation Christians sitting in this church. But I I thought about that, and I I envied that, and I thought on the other hand, you know what, you guys? You better keep going, or I might catch up with you. I want what God has for me. And there's a cost to it. But I want it. So this message is something that God has been speaking to me. Christ loved and gave himself for his bride. The scripture says why he did that. Why did he do that? That he might save her, us. He might save her and cleanse her with a washing of the water by the word. Think family devotions. Washing of water by the word. There needs to be the word of God cycling through our homes. There needs to be preaching in our homes. There needs to be God in our homes. It's not just a silent Christianity. That he might present the bride, he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And I think back to the many couples nights that we put on and participated in. It wasn't because we had it all, Pat. It's because I had a burden for my own marriage and a burden for those around me and those that did not hear teaching. And I guess that's just life. Like I'm saying, what's coming out here is where God has been dealing with me through the last four, five, ten years even, especially in the last years. Present it to himself. You know, there's a silly saying that goes around, I'd be a great husband if it wasn't for my wife. I would be a great church yeah, I'd be a great minister if it wasn't for my people. <laughs> but uh, on a sober note, we have a responsibility. God doesn't just, we don't, we don't just be silent about that. God gave us a responsibility. He said that he might present it to himself. And I, I have tried to take that to heart in my own marriage. And, you know, children are coming on too. But especially in marriage, you know what? There's times when I thought, my wife's just not spiritual. Man, she needs to get a hold of Jesus. There's misunderstanding sometimes. Those, those things can happen. It can feel that way. But the fact is, the scripture says that he might present it to himself. If your home or your marriage isn't where you want it to be, I think we can at least make an effort to see to, to, to do it God's way, to see it come through. Do what it takes. Be real. Just be real and be humble. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
If the man will be a purposeful man of God, the man and his wife both win. Marriage is a very sanctifying work in our lives. And it is. Marriage is a sanctifying part of our lives. It, it tries you. It, it brings you to the cross. It brings you to, the knee, to your knees. It, it brings you to a place of fullness and beauty. It, it's all wrapped up in one, and marriage is a beautiful thing. But it is a sanctifying thing, and I think God planned it that way. He, he's, we aren't, we're, we're disciples of Christ. We're ever following Christ. We're ever growing in Christ. It never stops. And we need that sanctifying work in our lives to keep molding us, shaping us, changing us into the image of Christ. And you know, as I think the further along we go, I'm kind of overlapping here with what I want to say later probably, but as time goes on, we should look more and more like Christ. It is the sanctifying work of God in our lives when the squeeze comes on. There's a sanctifying, and we make a choice. We get angry or we can make a choice to let it do, do what God wants it to do. We can let it make us beautiful. If pride is allowed to rule our relationships, then our relationships will never flourish. Speaking of marriage here, Christ didn't, from his distant throne in heaven, throw blanket commands. He came and walked among us. He had relationships, and aren't we glad he did? And as a father, as a, as a, as a husband, Christ is our example. He came, he gave, he served, he washed the feet, he died. My wife could tell you that I'm not perfect. I don't hit all these on the head every time. Probably not most of the time. Husband, love your wife. Exalt her to a rightful place as my one and only. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What about those that are not pure in heart? Will they see God? How do we respond to our wives pointing out to some... To pointing out to us some inconsistency in our lives. You ever had that happen? Maybe, maybe you, maybe you're a perfect man. Maybe I'm just. <laughs> Sometimes we hurt our wives, and it comes out forceful. It comes out in a degrading way. It feels like. You thought everything's fine, you know, you're going on in life and marriage is good and there's lots of work to be done and all of a sudden one day it's like whammo and say, what's going on, you know, I, I thought I was fine, I thought we're doing fine. But the question is, brothers, what do we do with that? What have I done with that? Did I get defensive? That's pride, defensive, like, there's nothing wrong with me, I, and I was my argument for me, probably many years, and there's... I didn't do anything right or anything different today than I did yesterday. Why is today all of a sudden it's different than yesterday? <laughs> That's part of the sanctifying that needs to happen in our hearts and our lives, in our homes. It just goes completely against my nature. I, I, I say this, understand what I'm saying. This goes completely against me as a man to to lower myself and enter into that thing and, and, and hear all that she has to say. You know, you know what I'm saying, brothers? Do you understand that? It's, it's almost like 
getting off of your throne in a sense, but really that's what we need to do. I mean, isn't that a little bit the problem that makes it so hard to just open ourselves to our wives and, and hear the heart of the matter? Because I think we're on a throne sometimes. We don't, we don't think that way. It's just kind of how we are. You know, as a man, we broad shoulder our way through life and the world. And our wives are delicate, emotional. Nothing wrong with that. God made them that way. It's beautiful. Matter of fact, we've, we were attracted to it for years, right? <clears throat> so what's our response? Can we humble ourselves and, and hear what our wife is saying? I recently was, something came to me from my wife, and I, you know, I had to leave the house for a while and go about my business and, and digest this. And I came back to the house, and I said, well, you know what you're saying? There's truth to that. It's true. That's, that's me. I'm sorry. I want to change it. And that's not always been my response. But God resists the proud. And if I'm going to resist my wife, I'm, I'm, I might as well quit. We're heirs together the grace of life. <clears throat> so another point there is at the end of that conversation, so if we, if we man up and do the right thing and we sit down with our wives and we take it all in and we... You know, come to a point of understanding, does our wife go away then feeling like she's loved and feeling like she's understood? Because for years, that was the thing my wife would say is, you just don't understand and you don't care to understand. You already got me figured out. And, you know, getting to that point of, of realizing that my wife doesn't have a spiritual problem, but she has a husband that has a spiritual problem, Change things. I thought because these things happen, I didn't realize that God created a woman so different from a man that this just this is how women are across the board. I mean, there's exceptions from what I've been reading in these marriage books that are studying marriages and trying to help us slow learners get a hold of some truths. Uh, Every one of us brothers could stand up here and, and preach this message and know, you know, we understand, you understand, brothers, what I'm saying. <clears throat> so how do we deal with that? Does she feel compassion coming from me? Does she feel understood? Does she, does she feel like I care about her? You know, once I started putting her in a place that she needs to get a hold of Jesus here, you know, we, this up and down stuff, that's not, that's not of God. We, we need to, you know, somehow my wife needs to get a hold of the cross of Christ. And when she doesn't like me today, that's beside the point. There's some days that maybe I don't like her either, but I still practice love. But I, God, God's creation is, I don't know what the word is that I want to use there. It's delicate. It, it, when it comes to the woman, it's different than the man. So that's why I'm preaching to men this morning, not women, because I'm on a learning, I'm on a, a learning journey about my wife. And I've been married for 14 years. I hope I said that right. <laughs> I'll be in trouble. <laughs> anyway, that was just that was just a joke. I, I didn't mean that. 
So anyway, what would Christ do? How did Christ deal with the church? How does he deal with us when we're hurting? What is Christ's response when we come broken to the foot of the cross, not understanding what's going on in our lives? Does Christ say, you unspiritual, you know, you need to get a hold of the grace of God. No, he doesn't. He holds out his hands. He meets us there. He brings peace and comfort and rest to our weary hearts. And maybe sometimes things don't change so quick, but still there's the grace of God that transcends transcends our circumstances. The peace that passes understanding, when it transcends our circumstances, the peace of God. So what did, what did, what did Christ do? He's our example. He makes himself available. He's wide open. There's times I've even blamed God for things. It's like, God, you this, you that. Why? And why do I get upset if my wife does that to me? I did it to the holy and high God, and she's just doing it to a mortal. Why did you do that? That wasn't consistent. Because my understanding of God is so limited, I have said things like that. Humility takes the walls down. Humility is always the answer. Humility and charity are so closely intertwined. Charity without humility is not possible, and humility without charity is not possible. They have to. They they just go hand in hand. Christ is the head of the church. Man is the head of the wife. He was a sacrificial lamb. He wasn't a demanding tyrant. He was a dying sacrifice. It's not the way of the world, but Christ is our example. How do you have a head of the home that is a dying sacrifice? Ephesians says that he is the savior of the body. What does that mean for a husband? When there's difficulties that arise? The head of the home? Maybe we should take that responsibility and be the savior of the marriage. It really is that practical. Christ is our example. It's a dichotomy again. Head of the church and sacrificial lamb. That's powerful. So second point this morning is humility and brotherhood. And you could say to me, well, what do you know about brotherhood? And I'd have to say very, very little. Because I do. I've been in and out of churches for a number of years. But I, I want to just lift up Christ this morning. The disciple is not above his master. Ye are my disciples. I came not to be served, but to give my life. So what are we here for? What, what is humanity here for? Why are the redeemed still on the face of the earth? What is, what is the whole point of that? And there was some contention among the disciples about who should be the greatest among them. 
So here was the Lord. He had stepped down from his throne. He come to earth. He put himself in a very humble place, born in a stable, grew up a Nazarite. Those around him thought he'd been born out of wedlock, and his disciples missed all of that. Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, and they didn't know all that yet. But their desire was exactly opposite of what Christ had done. They wanted to go from a lowly fisherman in Galilee to being someone great. Christ went from the Lord of glory to a lowly carpenter in, in, in Nazareth. The two disciples, one said, we found the Lord. And the other disciple said, cometh any good from Nazareth? <clears throat> so the disciples were still walking in the flesh. They were in the natural. They were a perfect example of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Jesus said to them, you know that the lords of the, the kings of this world lorded over their subjects. But I didn't come to do that. I came to serve. That's the natural man, that's the flesh, and the flesh and the spirit will be at war until the moment we die. What is a disciple? They were in the Bible, right? That's a pretty simple question or answer. A disciple is a learner. He is a pupil. Jesus said, take my yoke upon me and learn of me. That's a disciple, ever learning. That will never stop. As long as we live, we will be learners of Christ, followers together as the body of Christ here. That is, that is what I would love to see is followers together. I have struggled with the leader concept, leadership concept versus discipleship. You know, the old leadership, leadership seminars, and today it has changed its moniker to discipleship for men. And... I think those were meant right, but the way some of us took that, we took it wrong. We took it in the, in the carnal way. We took it the way some of these disciples did. They, they were striving to be leaders. They were going to be the greatest among the disciples. And some of us took that concept and did the same thing as children of God being regenerated. We still looked at leadership the way these, these disciples did. Jesus never said, make leaders. Go into all the world and make disciples. <clears throat> here's my, here's my uh, concept of that. If we set out to make leaders, we won't likely end up with disciples. A disciple is a follower. Most of humanity does not like that. That's not natural. It goes against the grain of man. Leadership, on the other hand, puts man above his peers. The world strives for leadership. The world strives to be on top. In the corporate world, the higher up the ladder, there's, there's people, their whole life goal is to get up that ladder. So when I think of a house full of leaders, I think of a house full of chiefs, Indian chiefs. And when you get a house full of chiefs together, the feathers might fly. <laughs> Excuse that. But anyway, honestly, though, think about that. Think about that. If I'm a leader, 
And you know, and what I mean by that, I'm not talking about the way that the seminars meant for it to be, but in the context of a man, you know, he kind of rules with a rod of iron, and you bring up children under that kind of thing. We have seen too much of that through the years where it just did not pan out. Some of those things, you know, and the children got old enough to pop out from under that, and they did just that. They popped out, and they, they did not do well. And the other thing is, I guess to me, thinking about that is, so if I'm a leader in my home and I'm one of these strong leaders like this and my sons grow up with the same mindset, hopefully they'll get married about the age of 20 years old because I don't know if the house could stand too many leaders in it, just for the same reason I said about the chiefs. You know, when there's leaders, somebody has to be a disciple. Somebody has to submit Somebody has to play second fiddle. A leader or a follower. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And I like this picture even better. I like this. Let's follow Christ together. So in that, we don't have an upper-cased system like some countries do. We can be open with each other without fear of someone getting on a high horse and riding over us. We're together. I want to say here that, you know, without without a vision for the future, a solid vision, a brotherhood agreement or guidelines, that direction of that body could be severely compromised if it's all about togetherness and what everybody decides corporately Um, one of the problems with that is is there's a lot of church groups around that are not affiliated with anything, and over the years, that's what has happened. There was nothing to guide them except the voice of the brothers. There was no other church groups that you was tied to, that, that you was accountable to, and so you got these islands that just drifted. Because you know what? Some of those, they said, leave your Bibles at home. When you come to the brothers' meeting, we got some decisions to make. That's true stuff. So in this disciple thing, I guess I see it's a little lower lower key, lower profile. If the church knows where they're going, if there's some parameters that are there, there's some accountability, we've agreed with other churches that, that this is what we want. Uh, it makes it a lot less threatening to have someone in that congregation challenge you. Someone in that congregation to speak up with an off-the-wall idea. And I'm not thinking of any case here. I'm just making a statement. Because if the church is, if the church is accountable to other bodies and the, the direction is fairly set, those things just aren't quite as threatening. And I, I, I just, so I want to throw that out there, but I do think that we need to see much more of a discipleship mindset. You know, I'll get to that later. <laughs> Imagine a body of followers who are wide open with each other. We're all on the same level in our own minds, and we are togethering each other toward heaven. Now, toward heaven might sound a little shallow, but we all want to get there, right? And with that kind of a mindset of togethering You know, I want to see you, brother, and your family get there. I want to see you finish faithful. You want to see me get there. You don't want to see me make shipwreck. 
There's a togethering that, that, that happens, that should happen. And disciples, I just see the, the picture of brothers. We're all on the same level. Uh, we're togethering to glory. And that is a sanctifying work. That, is, that has a sanctifying effect in our, in our lives. Just because we all have... We all have our own ideas. We all, we all, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Even Paul, the great apostle, said, I would that all men were as I am. But he said, but every man hath his proper gift of God. And none of us are exempt from that. And that's what happens when there's, when there's issue in the church is every way of a man is right in his own eyes. And if he's a leader, he's going to tell you what that way is. Because he's a leader. If he was a disciple-minded person, he could challenge you in a way less intrusive, way less offensive way. <laughs> no one is more guilty of the offend, the offended, offending part than I am. No one. I've, I've tried to live out that leadership mentality for years and God just, God has his way of resisting proud people and bringing them to a broken place. And all you got left is hanging on to the feet of Jesus and there's nothing else. It's like, God, I have no idea what I'm here for anymore. It, it, it's all gone. I just, there's nothing but Jesus left and it. It's, that's the last glimmer of hope that was left to me. I, church was gone. Everything else was gone. It's just like, Lord, you've got to save me. I, I, I'm in trouble. I'm losing it. I'm going to end up in in an insane asylum if this doesn't stop. <clears throat> Christ laid down his life for all of us. <clears throat> the only begotten of the Father, the eternal why did he do that? That he may bring many sons to glory. So we looked at Christ this morning, the creator. Christ in the beginning. There he was. And in light of that, this great eternal king coming down off of his throne, down the steps, and he lays aside his his kingly robe and his crown, and he comes to earth and washes the feet of his disciples. Doesn't the disciples' little contention look rather foolish? Who are we? We're the created. If God, the eternal God, the creator God could have compassion on me, the sinner. Why wouldn't I, the sinner, who can fully identify with my neighbor and my brother, have compassion on my brother? Shouldn't it even have been greater than God's compassion? Because I can identify with him, but Christ did identify with us. That's why he came. So their little contention was very ridiculous in light of Christ coming down from the cross. And I just said, I want to bring that to our own hearts. Humility in the brotherhood. 
Jesus' decisions were purposeful decisions, and I'd like to pick that up here. Humility addresses every area in our life. So back, back to some practical things again. Humility in our vehicles, humility in our houses, humility in our clothing. Do our possessions portray, do our abodes portray the humility of Christ? We may need these things, but let's take a look at how it does or does not portray an humble Christ. And that's convicting to me as I look at that. That's hard to know those answers. It's hard to know those answers. It's hard to just get a good grip on that. But I think we should wrestle with it. It takes, it takes a vision. For without a vision, the people perish. So it does take a vision. And that word perish does not mean that they're perishing in hell. It means that they perish, that they fall from the way. And that happens most times one generation at a time. A lot of times it's one generation at a time. Oh, we're fine. We don't need a bunch of rules and regulations and that kind of thing. Now, I'm not too keen on it myself, but I do see there's some wisdom here in, in coming to some agreements and some accountability type of things. But uh, without a vision, they perish. They will lose their way. That is the Bible. That's what it says. And if you look at it in that, in that sense, where, where are we fooling ourselves? <laughs> where, do we want, where do we want our grandchildren to be? It takes a vision. Habakkuk 2, 2. I'm just going to borrow some words, maybe out of context here, but there's some words that I came across several weeks ago. I just keep rolling them around in my head. Habakkuk says this, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. You ever try to run a race with a blindfold on You won't run in a straight line. It's going to be very ineffective. But we need vision to run this race. We need vision to run. Put a welding helmet on and run. You're going to fall down. It's going to happen. Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. The way is narrow, and we need a vision. It's just that simple. So God does care about the external. I'm just going to pull a verse out here. Um, I'm not, not going to go much further here, but God does care about the external. And I just came across this in Jude in my studies, and I felt like I should share it. So I'm just going to read it here. It says in Jude, And some save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And the flesh there is, a, is carnality. It's a, uh, somebody that's walking in the flesh. So why did God say to hate? Or what did God say to hate? He didn't say to hate the person that's walking in the flesh. He says to hate the garment. And that's an interesting thing to me as I considered this. Um, why were they in the fire? I don't, think this, I, I don't think he's necessarily talking only about the lost. Their garments are spotted by the flesh. Okay, so 
if we pull a lost soul out of the fire, like he says here, and their garments are worldly, guess what? God still hates the worldly garments. So that's just just a word of let's let's, let's steer clear from from things that might be questionable. Why not just be free and clear with God? Let's avoid that thing. Don't pass by it. Stay away from it. Seems like common sense to me. Seems like a good a good plan to me. Don't wander around where there's sinkholes. Don't wander around those places in the dark. <clears throat> Jesus said, I am come to do thy will, O God. And that's a different attitude than trying to get by, trying to say, well, what's wrong with it? What's the matter with it? That's a total different mindset than, than someone like Christ. He has come to do the Father's will. That's a total different mindset. But I like to say this. Let's be sure that, that our hate of the, of the fleshly garments are not stemming from self-righteousness because we will never pluck anyone out of the fire if that's where we dwell. It won't happen. We can't make a difference on some if we're self-righteous. So we may need to look at the heart. The heart's the important part, right? But God still hates the spotted garments. So what is this flesh? What is the world? We know what it is. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. So these garments are, are, are fitting into one of these three categories here. So humility thinks of others. Christ left a perfect world, entered a hostile world. He left his kingly position to be spit upon. He went from glory to an outcast and death for others. I'd like to make a point here. I'd be very careful about it, but there was one Christ. Why is there so much variation across the globe as far as the way people look and order their lives after this humble Christ. Why? There's only one Christ. How can we see so much of a difference? What? I, I ask that as an honest question. Why? What is the cause of this? I have some ideas about that, but maybe that'd be dinner table discussions. <coughs> Oh my. I'm going to step out on a limb here yet one more time. <clears throat> so as far as our children go, I was visiting with a brother the other well, this past week, and he was talking. You know, he's, he's enthused about raising children that are independent, that can, you know, when they're growing up, they can take a, a job and... and be a salesman and make things happen, you know, type of thing, where he's running his own construction crew, and these are business-minded people, and uh, it's good for children to think critically, to be independent thinkers. We don't want to, we don't want to foster uh, dependent children. We want them to provide for themselves and their families, and this was a man of God, and he didn't say a word about God in this thing, and I just, I don't know. I kept thinking about that, and I I came back to him a little bit later that day and I said, you know, brother, I think in our circles we've done too good a job of that. What happens when they're 20, 25, 30, and they say, 
Will you tell me what to do? <laughs> we've, fostered in, we've fostered independent attitudes in our children with, with that type of thing. And that we, I, I want to be careful with that. We do need children that are going to provide. We do need young men that are going to step to the plate and provide for their homes and families. But uh, somewhere we need to get the balance of children that see the deep, deep value in discipleship. Children that, that love discipleship, love to be together. A wise man hears a rebuke and is wiser still. So anyway, I, I have a picture in my mind. I don't think I can ever relay it to you in a, in a right way, but I'd like to try a little bit here. So as disciples of Christ, Christ has come and he, he, he walked this way and he's left us that pattern to follow. And as we step in his footsteps, try to step in his footsteps, we're going to fail because we're human. But there's so much power in, in, a, in a sincere repentance and apology to someone that you might have offended or, or said something you shouldn't have. That's evidence that the grace of God is working in your life. But the thing that I want to say about that is as we go on with life and we're following Christ, we're, we're raising up children to be disciples of Christ to where we can together, you know, obviously, obviously I'm more mature than my children are as Christians. However, as we go along, there can be three, four, five generations if the Lord tarries without a whole lot of... Uh, a whole lot of contention or that sort of thing because a disciple of Christ is a follower of Christ. He is not a leader. He is not a man that has, it's got to be his way or the highway. He is simply following Christ and he is an example. Now that's a, that's a good term of a leader. Paul said, follow me. We could say, well, Paul was leading. He was. But let's don't get our wires crossed with that. Let's be disciples. And let's, let's disciple one generation after the other, if we can, as much as lies within us. I mean, I see a beautiful picture, you know, where you have a bunch of leaders. There's just men sitting around at a family gathering, and there's arguments about the scriptures here and the scriptures there, and nobody's going to give in to the other. They just get loud, and they won't talk to each other for a half a year or a year. It's like, oh, I don't want to talk to him. Oh, he's calling... I'm going to answer the phone, see who that is. That's not a disciple. There's a dreadful lack of humility in that kind of thing. <clears throat> the world calls for individualism. The Bible calls for unity. And I, let's, let's just get a hold of that. Let's let God do what he needs to do with that. So Christ is our, our example. He came down from glory and he put on a white apron, as Dale Heise likes to say, and he... He washed the feet of his disciples. And I, yeah, let, let's, let's take courage with that and be disciples of Christ.